like to start this morning just with a chance for you to reflect on a question. Maybe you can write it down in your notebook or somewhere if you're taking notes or just reflect on it mentally and internally. I want to ask you this question. If you were to identify in the pre-church period, before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who were the most significant or greatest people in God's redemptive plan? Just the greatest people. The ones that stand out the most to you when you think. Remember Hebrews 11, we studied many of these people. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, David, Daniel. Think back across your Old Testament and think of the three that come to mind first. The three that come to mind first. Who are the ones that you picture in your mind as being the most significant in God's redemptive plan? And I'll pause so you can reflect. Your top three list. Maybe you've written them down, maybe not yet. My question for you this morning is, are you following Jesus' list? Oh, Jesus didn't have a full list. But Jesus actually had a list. Because he said in Luke 7 and verse 28, that among every single person that was born of a woman, I think that classifies everyone. Everyone that was born of a woman, there is not a greater prophet, a messenger of God, than John the Baptist. How many of you had John the Baptist in your top three? Maybe some of you were thinking about that and you knew where we were going this morning. You knew the Bible reading that we had in Mark chapter 1. Maybe some of you got it. But I just did that to suggest that a lot of us don't give John the Baptist the due that he deserves and that the Bible gives him. John the Baptist, Jesus is saying, if you look back at the pre-church era, before, if you will, Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God, John the Baptist is the greatest. Number one. Wow. David, Abraham, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the prophets that we think of. John the Baptist? What do we think about John the Baptist? Oh, he was that really strict guy. He wore that funny clothes and he ate locusts. Who eats locusts? He's the guy who went around preaching and baptizing. I remember one time I was at a church down south that I attended when I was at school. And it was a, a guy who was very proud of his Baptist heritage. And he said in this very strong southern drawl about how proud he was to be a Baptist because he went back to the very first Baptist, John the Baptist. And I must say my eyebrows raised at that just a little bit because John the Baptist wasn't a Baptist. The idea is he was a baptizer. That's really how you could translate it. John the Baptist. 
baptizer. What he did was he baptized people. And that was such a unique and strange thing to the Jews that were around him. He just got the nickname, the baptizer, the Baptist. That's who he was. This very unique character, this very, perhaps we might say, a little bit odd character, Jesus says, is the greatest prophet of all time before him. And I want us to notice here in Mark chapter 1, as we started just last week, our study of this wonderful book. Verse number 2 says, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. I want to dig in a little bit this morning to the subject of John's greatness. Why was John so great? Why does every single gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, emphasize the ministry of John the Baptist, emphasize the fulfillment of the prophetic message about John, emphasize his centrality in the gospel story? I want to answer those questions today. And we'll do it in a message entitled, John the Messenger. John the Messenger. The messenger that was sent before your face to prepare your way before you. Let's start, first of all, with John's mission. John the Messenger had a mission. And what was his mission? Look again with me at verse number two. As it is written in the prophets. Now it's very important that we see where Mark starts again here. Notice that Mark doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus. He doesn't talk about the shepherds or about the angels. He doesn't talk about Simeon and Anna waiting in the temple. He doesn't talk about the three wise men or the wise men of which we suspect there may have been three. What is he talking about? He starts with reaching back hundreds of years into the past and quotes two different prophets. The first one, Malachi. The second one, Isaiah. He quotes two different prophets. Malachi was written at least 400 years before Jesus was born. A prophecy of what would happen 400 years in the future. And I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. What happened 400 years ago? The year 1621. Do you know what happened in the year 1621? It was when the pilgrims met with the the, uh, Native Americans that were around them for what is sometimes called the first Thanksgiving. That was 400 years ago. Imagine 400 years ago, someone making a prophecy about something that would happen and it being fulfilled perfectly in the year 2021. We would say, wow, that's pretty impressive. Isaiah was written, it said, at least 700 years before Jesus. 700 years. John the Baptist was prophesied to come. Why do you think Mark starts there as it is written? Because he wants us to know that the birth of Jesus Christ was no accident. It was part of a plan. And not only was Jesus' birth part of the plan, something else was part of the plan. Another person was part of the plan. John the baptizer 
was part of the plan. He was part of God's story of redemption and he was prophesied hundreds of years in advance. Now, do we think that way about John? John, you were an essential part of the plan for sending the Messiah, Jesus. It was necessary for you to come because hundreds of years in advance, you were foretold clearly. That's where he wants to start, as it is written. This is not an accident. It's part of a plan. Now, what I want us to do is just look very, uh, uh, in an interesting way, I think, at verse 2 and 3. As it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. And if I want to just help us here, I have a picture in my own mind, and I want to try to bring you into this. Ten years ago or so, I was working for a, a federal judge in uh, downtown Minneapolis. And my office that I had looked over Washington Avenue. And so you know where the train depot is downtown, the old train depot? That's right where it is. So I was just looking over Washington Avenue toward that train depot. And one day I was just kind of looking out the window and I noticed something very interesting. Washington Avenue is a very busy street. But when I looked out there, there wasn't a car that I could see. No civilian cars. It was completely empty. Okay, something's going on here. And then I noticed that streets that would bisect Washington Avenue were blocked off. It was like police barricades or even police, maybe cars. I don't remember perfectly, but it was just completely blocked off. Washington Avenue was empty. Okay, something's going on here. And so I just kind of kept watching and glancing at what was going on on this empty street. And suddenly I realized why. Because I saw a caravan. A caravan of black SUVs and very important looking black vehicles. And I think even big 15 passenger vans and a whole welter, a whole slew of police cars. What was going on? President Barack Obama was going down Washington Avenue. And in order to allow President Barack Obama to go down Washington Avenue without any traffic jams, without any danger, without any harm to his own safety, the way needed to be entirely clear. It need, the street needed to be empty. Okay, I want you to think about that picture now. Because last week we were invited, we were introduced to Jesus, the king. Remember the gospel, the herald that the king was coming, both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Jesus is coming. And so what needed to happen before Jesus came? The same thing that needed to happen to the president in 2011. The way needed to be clear. And notice this prophecy from Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare your way. Before you. So, John the Baptist's mission was to clear the streets, to clear the way before the king that would be coming. What about the next verse? The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, this famous messianic prophecy about Jesus Christ. And it talks about a way being made straight. In fact, the verse after the one that Mark quotes says this one. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain or smooth 
he's talking about a road that is being prepared. And another picture comes into my mind. 35W South, just a little bit south of church here and just a little bit west. Didn't it seem like it was under construction literally forever? It just finished. And do you remember when 35W was being prepared and being entirely rerouted and repaved? What did we see? Massive piles of dirt. Big, big, heavy-duty equipment moving tons of earth and preparing for a straight path for this new road and highway. And again, this is the picture of John. What was John's work? He was taking the valleys that weren't fit for a king to go over and bringing them up. He was taking those high mountains of pride and vanity that weren't fit for a king to go over and bringing them low. He was taking those crooked places of people's rebellion against God and saying it's time to make this a straight path because the king is coming and he needs a straight highway. He needs a clean road. And you get another picture of the Messiah and what John the Baptist came for his mission. Now it's very important that we see something here that Mark does that I think is going to be very important to recognizing who Jesus was and what his mission was. I need someone to read that, that verse in Malachi. Malachi 3 and verse 1. Would anyone volunteer to take a look at that? Malachi is right, if you want to get there from Mark, you just go Matthew and then one book back into the Old Testament into Malachi. John Anderson, would you mind taking a, a, a read of that? I want us to keep our finger here in Mark 1 and look back at Malachi chapter 3 because I think this will help you. Malachi 3, and I just want you, John, to read that first phrase for us. So stand up and shout it out for us. Yes. Okay, stop there. He shall prepare the way before me. Now I want you to go back to Mark chapter 1, and I want us to see what is different in Mark's quote. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. What's the difference? Malachi 3 said, He shall prepare the way before who? Me. What did Mark say? He shall prepare the way before you. What's going on there? This is what's going on. When Malachi 3 says that John the Baptist would prepare the way before God himself, before me, Mark understood that what he meant was he will prepare the, my way before Jesus, who is God. He will prepare your way before you, the Son of God, God himself. Do not miss this. He is identifying with Jesus Christ, God himself. And that is the prophecy of what John came to do, to prepare the way before God himself.
What an incredible mission that was. What an incredible responsibility. Why was John so great? Why was he the greatest among those that were born of women leading up to that time? Because his job was so significant to prepare the road, the highway for the appearance of God in the flesh, Jesus the Messiah. That is his mission and what an important one it was. Secondly, let's look here at John's ministry. John's mission to prepare the way and John's ministry. Will you look with me now at verse 4? Mark tells us that John did baptize in the wilderness and preach. So he was doing something, baptizing, and he was preaching. He was saying something. He was preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, just east of Jerusalem. In the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, I just want to have this picture in our minds. Here's John the Baptist, this guy who was sent to prepare the way before Jesus. And just picture these crowds coming out to him from all around the place of Judea, that whole region, and more specifically even from Jerusalem, the big city, the place, the religious center. And they're coming out to him, and he's going in the river with them, the river of Jordan, I mean, we think of the Mississippi that's right down the street from us, going into the river and immersing them, dunking them. That's what the, that's what the word baptize means. It means to immerse, to dunk. See, what an interesting thing that he was doing. And the Bible tells us that he was preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, what is the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins? I think we'll help best understand it if we go backwards. The remission of sins, repentance, and then baptism. Notice, first of all, what this baptism was connected to. It was connected to the remission of sins. Now, the remission means the forgiveness of sins. It means dealing with your sin. In other words, what this baptism of repentance was all about was about dealing with sin. John the Baptist came to prepare the way of Jesus by calling people to deal with their sin. And when we think about what exactly this way is, that picture of hills being brought low and valleys being lifted up and crooked places being made straight, we see pretty good illustrations of what sin is. Sin is what makes your life difficult Sin is what brings you out of God's path. Sin is what makes mountains in your life that don't need to be there. Sin is what makes valleys that you don't need to go through. Sin is what causes sometimes our lives to be very crooked in areas that God would love for them to be straight. Sin is what ultimately withholds the blessing of our relationship with God. It is sin. Sin is ultimately destructive to us. As the Bible says, the wages of sin, of our rebellion against God, is death. And that is always true. When we sin, there always is death, in a sense, that flows from it. 
There always is a connection to our breaking of fellowship with God in that particular moment that can have significant consequences to us, even if, by God's mercy and grace, it will be forgiven as he promises. And so notice here, John's central theme here, John's central um, connection to his mission is that he is calling people to deal with their sin. But notice then what also happens. It's not just a baptism toward the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins. It is a baptism of repentance. What does dealing with sin involve? It involves repentance. Now, what is repentance? Repentance is an inward change that is expected to result in outward action. What is repentance? Repentance is an inward change that is expected to, that will result in outward change. The word repent in our Bibles, in our New Testaments, has the idea of changing your mind. The ideas of a, of a change of heart toward a particular action or toward a particular thing. Have you ever said to your spouse or to someone you love dearly, I was wrong, you were right? Why do those words grind themselves coming out of our throats? Why is it that our, my own little children, such sweet, sweet little cherubs, angels, all of them, why is it that they have such a hard time saying that? I was wrong, and you were right. It's a hill that needs to get knocked down. It's a hill of pride. It's a mountain of pride. And what repentance looks like is the inward admission, God, you are right in this, and I am wrong. When you told me not to do that, you were right. And I was wrong when I didn't. When you made this command for my good, you were right and I have been wrong. That's the essence of repentance. And notice how this was connected at these people's baptism. Notice verse 5. They all were baptized of him in the river of Jordan. And what were they doing? What does our verse tell us? They were confessing their sins. Can you imagine this scene? This massive crowd comes up to the river, and they and John is preaching the importance of baptism, of repentance for the remission of sins, and someone sticks his hand up and says, I've been wrong. Let me tell you where I've been wrong. I need to get right. And he goes into the water and gets baptized. And then someone over here, a woman, raises her hand and says, i got to get right too. I've been wrong with God and let me confess my sins and tell you what's been wrong in my life. And then someone over here, here's a rich fella. He's been a tax cheat. And he says, here, let me tell you what's been going on in my life. I need this. And into the water he goes and gets baptized. Can you imagine what a scene that was? They were baptized of him confessing their sins. Repentance is recognizing, acknowledging that God is right and that I have been wrong. And John's message to them was, it's time for you to deal with this sin. It's time for you to deal with the areas that you've been in rebellion against God. It's time for you to deal with the things that are breaking your fellowship with God. It's time to repent, to change your mind and heart toward God in a way that will change the way you live. 
But I want us to notice one other thing. Not only was this for, he was directing people toward the forgiveness of sins, dealing with their sins by repentance, but it involved baptism. Now, this baptism is so simple and so significant to us as Christians. We have baptism services right here in this church, including not long ago. Baptism seems normal to us, but do you know who it wasn't normal to? The Jews. It wasn't normal to them. Why do you think they called him John the Baptizer? You don't call someone John the Baptizer if everyone else is baptizing. It wouldn't make any sense. He was John the Baptizer because others weren't. He was different. And what was different about it? People have, have suggested different things about why this was so significant. And, and indeed, there were times when the Jews would have ceremonial washings or sprinklings or other things. But the thing that clicks the best for me is that in this, in this time, it would be very rare to baptize. But someone who might get baptized, immersed, dunked in the water, is a Gentile who was ready to become a Jew religiously. If a Gentile said, I'm ready, I'm ready to follow Jehovah God, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to obey him, sometimes he would be baptized as his introduction in to Judaism. Now I want you to think about that significance. When you have Jews coming, Jews themselves, Jews were the people of Abraham. The dominant thought among Jews at that day was, I don't need to be saved. I don't need, to be sa uh, 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 I don't need salvation. I'm already right with God. Why? Because I'm a Jew. Because I'm the son of Abraham. I'm already in God's family. I'm already in his house. I don't need to enter in. What did it mean for them to come and say, no, I'm a sinner. I'm not right with God. I so need to be right with God. I will be baptized just like a Gentile would. Do you see why that would be so powerful for them? This was a real humbling thing. In fact, who are the ones who resisted John's baptism? Who are the ones who refused to get baptized from John? Does anyone know? The Pharisees? And do you remember what John said to them? He said, think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. Why? Because that's what they were saying. We don't need this. Abraham's our father. Our spiritual father, we're already right with God. He made us right with God. And John's saying, uh-uh, you're just like a Gentile. Your sin is blocking your relationship with God. And the Messiah is coming. You better get right. That was the power of all of this. A Jew confessing that he wasn't right with God. That his family relationship, that his ethnic heritage, that where he descended from in the genealogical tree had no difference in his relationship with God. And friends, it's true with you. I can't tell you the number of times I've gone out into this city to talk to someone about their need for God and they tell me, oh, my grandpa was a preacher. My uncle was a deacon. My aunt was the organist. My mom took me to church all the time growing up. And I want to say that doesn't matter. Because no one else's relationship with God can fix yours. No one else's relationship with God will bring you into God's front door. Only your relationship with him will. Some of us may need to hear the same thing that John said to those Pharisees before. Don't think that you're right with God because of your family relationships. You're right with God only when you take care of your own sin and get right with him in the way of repentance.
Here's what John said to these people. He says, now also the axe is laid to the root of the trees. It's about ready to cut down the tree. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down. It's cut down and cast into the fire. And he was saying to those Pharisees, Jesus is coming. And if you're not right with him, you are in danger of hellfire eternally. That was the message. That was the ministry of John. This physical symbol, immersion in water, baptism, to connect to people their own need to get right with God and to deal with their sin by saying publicly that God was right and they have been wrong. Repentance. John's mission to prepare the way before Jesus. John's ministry, this baptism of repentance that was such a crucial thing to prepare the way. And thirdly, John's message. John's message, because I want us to bring these two things together just like Mark does. They were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. But you ask, how was this connected to preparing the way for Jesus? How did this fulfill John's mission? A couple things that we need to look at. Notice first verse 6. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle or a belt of a skin of leather about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey. You say, why does Mark put that there? Why do we need to know what John looked like? Have you ever wondered that? Why is this detail included in our Gospels over and over again, telling us what John looked like? There's a reason for it. It's because John knew how prophets dressed. If you go back into your Old Testament, 2 Kings in chapter 1, Elijah, remember the great prophet of the Old Testament, was identified in what he wore. It says in that verse that he was a hairy man. Now we have this picture of a guy with body hair coming out everywhere. No, that's not actually, I think, really what's going on. The idea is, of, in the Hebrew, he was a possessor of hair. The picture seems to be that of the clothes he was wearing. He was wearing a hairy garment. And what also does it tell us about him? He was wearing a leather belt. John knew how prophets dressed. And how did prophets dress? You could see this not even just in this history. They wore this kind of of rough-hewn garment of hair. Now, don't think of this as a mink coat. Camels don't have soft hair. Camels' hair garments were rough. They were itchy. They were not necessarily very comfortable. Why was John wearing that? Because he knew what his job was. He was a messenger. He was a prophet. And he was completely committed to it. He was so committed to it, he was out in the desert. He was so committed to it that what he relied on for food is what you have out in the desert, locusts, and maybe some wild honey here and there. You can actually eat locusts. They have protein. They're a source of protein and other things. That's exactly what his nourishment was. What is the picture here? Mark wants us to see that this man was 100% all in committed to what God had for his life. That's the story. This was a man who knew what his job was, and he was all in. Friends, if we could just draw one application very simply for ourselves, it's this. How often are we hindered in God's purpose for us because, simply put, we are not all in? Simply put, we are not 
willing to take the cost for what he has called us to do. It may be as simple as being a dad, a mom, a husband, a wife, a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, whatever it is, wherever God calls us, he expects us to be all in no matter the cost. And here was a man that scripture wants us to be clear. His greatness was in in some part connected to the fact that when God called him to do something, he jumped in with both feet and said, whatever you need, I'm all in. But then notice verse 7. He preached saying, there comes one mightier than I after me, one greater than me. The latchet, the laces of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. Do you know all of our Gospels include this statement from John? This is a big deal. John, the greatest man who existed up to this time, looks to Jesus and says, I'm not even willing, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoelaces. And you say, well, what, what does that mean? It it meant something more to them than it means to us. And here's why. Commentator quotes something from the Babylonian Talmud, a source for Jews that that that, that, that the Jews that day would take from and read from. And do you know what that said? It said, all services which a slave does for his master, a pupil should do for his teacher, Are you following me so far? Everything that a slave does for his master, a pupil, a student should do for his teacher, except with the exception of undoing his shoes. That was so degrading to a Jew that they said everything that a slave does for his master, a student should do for for his teacher, but not that. That's too low. In fact, there's another source that I I saw uh, referenced that said that a Hebrew slave could not be compelled to take off someone's shoes. That would have to be a Gentile. That would have to be some other kind of servant. A Hebrew slave would not do that degrading a task. Do you get the picture now? The greatest man who lived up to that point looked at Jesus, the Messiah, and said, I am not even worthy to be a Hebrew slave for him. I am not even worthy to be his humble student, his pupil. I could not even put myself in that honored position of undoing his laces like a slave. That's a humble man. That's a man who's so invested in what God has called him to do and is so focused on who he came to prepare for, Jesus the Messiah, that he saw himself as being absolutely nothing. Friends, there's a message here for us too, isn't there? Those who are greatest, those who are greatest in God's economy are those who are the least aware of their own greatness. And those in large part who are least in the kingdom of God are those who who are most aware of their own greatness. The ones who are the greatest are the ones who have plunged themselves into God's calling and purpose for their life, humbly committed to what God has called them to do. This is what Jesus said when he said, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. The greatest is the servant. The greatest is the least. This is what Jesus came to do in flipping everything that the world tells us about greatness. Not climbing up the ladder to a taller position, but descending the ladder to a lower one. 
Not the one who says that job is beneath me, but the one who says if God calls me to do it, there could be nothing greater for me to do. A one whose greatness was given and revealed in large part in his humble service toward Jesus Christ. Friends, do you aspire to be great? Do you aspire to be great in God's eyes? Then forget about your own greatness and serve people in whatever God has called you to do. And God says, you'll be great. Whoever is the least is the greatest. What a wonderful picture this is of this wonderful man. And I hope that in different ways, each one of us will find whatever opportunities we have to give ourselves in service of others and follow John the Baptist's example of humble commitment. But then notice what also he says. Not only is this one far mightier than I, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose, he says in verse 8, I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Notice the comparison. He says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and unloose his sandals like a slave. But then he says, what I have done, all I have done is baptized you with water. But he is coming. His greatness will be revealed in that he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost, with the Holy Spirit. Now, what is he saying here? Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit as an it, a thing, a mysterious, strange force that comes upon you. No, he's a person. He's a person that you can know. He's a person that is the indispensable secret to your Christian life. Do you want to have a victorious Christian life? You need to know the Holy Spirit. Do you want to have joy and peace in your life? Do you want to, to experience the fullness that God came to, to give to you? You need to know the Holy Spirit. Notice the picture here. The Holy Spirit, who we walk in, who we rely on, whose power is central to our lives. John says, I came to baptize you in water, to immerse you in water. It's only a symbol. It's only a physical property that has no effect on changing your life. Water cannot change you. It can only make you clean on the outside. It can't make you clean on the inside. It's just a picture. That's all I did. What did Jesus come to do? He came to immerse you in the Holy Spirit. Friends, imagine this picture. People get up out of the water. They come out dripping wet. They have been immersed. They are overflowing with water, saturated with water. And John is saying, just like you've been immersed in water, that's what Jesus, the Messiah, wants to do with you. He wants to immerse you in the Holy Spirit so that you are saturated with him and with his power. John recognized, I can only do a picture here. I can only tell you to deal with your sin, with the repentance that reflects an inward change, but he's the only one that can bring the power to make it happen in your life. He's the only one that can bring you the person of the Holy Spirit who wants to change you from the inside out to saturate yourself in him. And John ultimately pointed all of us to the wonderful promised Holy Spirit that Jesus came to unleash for all of us. Now, just one note. 
Some of our charismatic friends would say this baptism of the Holy Spirit is something after you become saved. It's another special, higher level of experience in the Christian life. I don't believe so. I think John was talking about the immersion that Jesus came to give at Pentecost and then the ability for all of us, the moment we are saved, the Holy Spirit indwells us. He seals us. And yes, he fills us for service after our Christian, first Christian experience. All of these things could be included in this idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. But just recognize the central thing. Jesus came so that you would be submerged and saturated with the Holy Spirit. So that the Holy Spirit wouldn't be someone you would be wondering, is is he with me today? Uh, Do I have his blessing today? But so that your daily life would be knowing him and experiencing his power and seeing him transform you from the inside out. Is that the way you know the Holy Spirit? Do you know him because you've been immersed in him? Because you are saturated with him? That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to fill you with God himself so that you would be empowered to live life the way he wants you to. Are you saturated in the Holy Spirit? Notice this wonderful promise And notice this picture, John calling people to deal with their sin so that he can prepare the way for the miraculous spiritual power that Jesus came to unleash in their lives. And friends, this is where I want to close this this morning. There's a connection here that we should never forget. It's a connection that is true in every single one of our lives. It's this to prepare the way for what Jesus wants to do in your life requires you to deal with your sin. It's that simple. John the Baptist came because this entire nation of Israel needed to recognize that they weren't right with God and they needed their sin to get taken care of if they would be ready to recognize the Messiah. And the truth for all of us, friends, is if you are here today and you know that you are not right with God, you know that your sins have not been forgiven, you do not know as you sit here today whether if you were to die today, you would go to heaven to be with God eternally. You do not know whether you are in relationship with him. What needs to happen is your sin needs to be taken care of. And the way your sin is taken care of is because Jesus came to die on the cross and take the punishment for those sins, to take your sins on him and give you his righteousness in exchange. And if you will repent and say, God, you are right and I have been wrong and I will accept what Jesus is, has done for me, I will embrace him by faith as my Savior, as my Lord, you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, our Bible says, and thou shalt be saved. Friends, is that what you need today? Do you need that message of John the Baptist for you saying, I need to get my sins taken care of. I need to get right with God. But you know, friends, maybe I'm talking to someone else who says, I know I'm a Christian. I know I've been saved by Jesus. But you know what? I'm not saturated with the Holy Spirit. 
I don't have that power in my life. I keep on falling into the same sins over and over again. I keep on going down the same bad paths over and over again. I need to experience what Jesus came. I need to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Friends, do you know there's a connection here too? You and I have to deal with our sin. This is what James said in James chapter 4. He said, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That means as long as there's a mountain that we put up in our life in terms of pride that says, I'm doing okay. I don't need to get things right with God. Yeah, I've made some mistakes here and there. Yeah, I keep on falling into things I know God doesn't want me to do. But I'm mostly okay. As long as that mountain of pride is there, God is going to resist us. But it's those who hear the message of John the Baptist and prepare the way for Jesus Christ who recognize their need to have their sins taken care of. It's those ones who are preparing the way for the work that Jesus has. God gives grace to the humble. And then James goes on to say this in James 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Friends, if you want to be saturated with the Holy Spirit, if you want to experience his power in a fresh way, the first step is this, draw near to God. Be honest with him. Tell him where you have been rebelling against him. Be honest with him. Be candid with him. He knows. Humble yourselves before him and say, God, I haven't been living in the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. I haven't been walking in the Spirit. I've been fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. I haven't been following your design for my life in ways big and small. I have been out of the path. I have been off to the sideline. I haven't been in the game like you've wanted me to be. Friend, it's time to get right with God. It's time to draw near to him. And we can see and trust this biblical connection that when we get right with him, he is willing to give us of his Holy Spirit and for us to experience what God intended for us through the work and person of Jesus Christ. This John the Baptist was a messenger. He was a great messenger, the greatest messenger, the greatest prophet. Because he was a man who told people the Messiah is coming and you've got to get right with God by taking care of your sin. Friends, if you've got to get right with God today, whether in coming to Jesus for salvation for the first time or seeking a greater power and a relationship with the Holy Spirit, now's the time to listen to the message of John the Messenger and bring about our own repentance. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this simple message of this faithful man. What a great man he was who came to prepare the path for Jesus. Father, you set before us the same path today. If we want to be right with you, we need to take care of our sin. And you gave us Jesus and his perfect sacrifice on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. And Father, you have empowered us to live life the way you want us to by your Holy Spirit. And the only way we will live in his fullness is by taking care of our sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pause now. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, 
I don't know what your need is before God, my friend. But I invite you to listen to the message that John the Baptist gave and ask where it needs to apply in your own life. If there's anyone here who has any question about whether they've accepted Jesus as their own, whether their sins are forgiven, I sure would love to speak with you before you leave this morning.